0: Insight and Awareness Spiritual Explorer. Soul intuitive, emotional, and spiritual mentor and award winning author Lorraine Nylon.
1: Welcome, explorers. Thank you for being part of the adventure. Today we have a special guest, and it's Dr. Evan Alexander. Evan, I'm going to ask you to explain your book, Proof of Heaven, and you've also got The Map of Heaven. And living in a mindful universe. So you've got lots to talk about. So could you give us a rough understanding of how proof of heaven come about?
0: Okay. Well, important to point out that I, you know, was, uh, spent my whole career really aimed for neurosurgery. My father was a globally renowned neurosurgeon. Uh, and, uh, that was, uh, you know it, there were many kind of fits and starts to it, but ultimately uh, towards the end of college, I knew I wanted to go to medical school, and the, even though I resisted neurosurgery initially because I didn't want to be kind of comparing myself with my father's career, uh, ultimately when I did a rotation in neurosurgery in medical school, I went, oh my gosh, he was right. This is the best thing since sliced bread. So, uh, and I've never regretted that decision to go into neurosurgery. Uh, But that was largely due to his influence. My father, my adoptive father, as it is, he was a a tremendous influence in my life. And so uh, I went into that. And, of course, I was trained like so many in the modern era in, in science and medicine, trained in materialism or physicalism. That is the notion that the physical world is the only thing that exists. And, of course, we kind of vaguely muse in the background that we must somehow come up with a way to explain consciousness and mind uh you know in phenomenal experience in the setting of that materialism um uh, and that's never really gone anywhere uh that's really part of the biggest problem and so the the adventure that i went through in november of 2008 when i fell ill with an extremely aggressive primitive and should have killed me bacterial meningoencephalitis um, none of that adventure could have happened according to the tenets of modern neuroscience and the reason for that is that this severe form of bacterial meningitis is a perfect model for human death because it preferentially uh, wrecks the neocortex you know and if you ask any neuroscientist uh they would say the neocortex is the main calculator involved in all the detailed uh pieces of conscious awareness in a human being you know everything we C is is put together in the occipital cortex, in the back of our brain, everything we hear put together in the temporal cortex, in our temporal lobes. Uh, all of our executive thinking, access to memories, things like that, is involves the frontal lobes and then the limbic system. All of these are cortical structures. And if you destroy that, which you can do with a, with a severe case of, of meningoencephalitis, you basically have eliminated all the ways in which modern neuroscience says that a conscious experience can come to uh, existence. And that was the thing that haunted me, even though initially after my weakened coma due to this severe infection, um, you know, all my memories were deleted. All my knowledge of neuroscience and neurosurgery was gone when I came back to this world. But the interesting thing to me was how it all came back over about two months. Uh, And in fact, we discuss a lot of these mysteries much further than I do in the book, Proof of Heaven, in our third book, Living in a Mindful Universe. But the book, Proof of Heaven, to get right back to your question, Mm -hmm. um, was really just my admission as a modern medical scientist who had a richly spiritual experience that was completely impossible, according to the tenets of modern neuroscience. I mean, my awareness should have been dumbed down to almost nothing given the the objective damage to my brain. And that's not just the damage I presented in the book, Proof of Heaven, but there's a medical case report on my medical records. It was written by three doctors, not involved in my care, but fascinated by my recovery. Uh, that report came out in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease in in uh, September 2018. Uh, and that particular case report basically raised two very fundamental Uh, kind of shocking points. One is that they they affirmed and validated that my brain was far too damaged based on neurologic exams, based on CT and MRI scans. It showed that all lobes in my brain were affected based on lab values. This is an extremely deadly case of, of meningitis, not a mild case, as if you ever have a mild case of bacterial meningitis. But the reality is, I should not have had any experience at all. So how did I have the most profound, rich, detailed, memorable, alive, life-transforming set of of events of my entire life when my brain was demonstrably offline? That's the first mystery that they raise in the case report. And the second, which goes uh, even further, is how in the world do you explain this recovery? Because in fact, when they submitted the case report, The peer review editors of that scientific journal said, wait a minute, this case is unprecedented in the medical literature. They called it absurd. How did this particular illness go so far, a week in deep coma, and then allow me to come back and not only that, but then to have a full recovery over two months? That part is absolutely astonishing. I mean, my doctors expected at the beginning of the week that I had a 10% chance of survival by the end of the week, only a 2% chance of survival. Uh, you know, that's not a miracle 2%, but to then wake up from that coma with a brain that was devastated to the point where I didn't even recognize my loved ones at the bedside, my mother, my sisters, my sons, I had no idea who these beings were. All I knew is where I would just been this extraordinary journey, which is what I reported in the book, proof of heaven. Um, and um, so the the peer reviewers said, "How do you explain it?" And the 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 three physicians, uh, Doctor Lauren Moore, Serbikana, and Bruce Grayson, who wrote the case report, said it's because he had a near death experience. That explains this recovery. Now they didn't go into more detail. They would use words like you know psycho neuroimmunology, uh, you know, to explain things that we don't know about, but basically they were saying this kind of extraordinary healing is something we've seen before. We see it in the setting of near-death experiences, like uh, Mary uh, C. Neal, who wrote the book Dying uh, uh, you know, to Heaven and Back, uh, and in her book, she basically had an over 30-minute warm water drowning kayaking in Chile in the late 19th and ask any doctor, what's your brain going to be like after more than 30 minutes of a warm water drowning? They'll say, your brain will be mush. But they brought her to the surface dead. They resuscitated her. She had a long recovery, but she ended up, you know, going back into orthopedic surgery full-time and also sharing her story, just like I share mine. Or Anita Morjani, who wrote the book, Dying to Be Me, who had an advanced stage four lymphoma, who should have been dead within hours of her presentation to a Hong Kong emergency room back in February, 2006. And yet she had an extraordinary NDE that resulted in her cancer going away. That is the most important set of lessons that comes out of modern NDE literature. It's just a reminder that as spiritual beings, we have tremendous power to influence our emergent health and healing. Uh, and that is exactly what NDEs do for the world at large. They bring people back very much healed, no longer afraid of death, No longer subject to such ego toxicities, but more kind of as a higher soul that's a witness the other side, realizing that our brain is not the creator of consciousness. The brain in modern neuroscientific terms is merely a transceiver or potentially a, you know, reducing valve or a filter, what have you. But it's our interface to that much grander consciousness of the mind of the universe. And that is where this world is headed. And the science of consciousness is shifting dramatically to accept this. But my book, Proof of Heaven, was really the first kind of statement of this kind of reality for all of us. And I look back on the book, Proof of Heaven, as more of a question mark. It simply says, yes, okay, these things are real. They happen. They can happen to any one of us, including you know a Harvard neurosurgeon, but I've heard you know, thousands of stories from the millions of people who have had these experiences that have been very helpful to me in terms of understanding more deeply our the nature of our relationship with the universe. I think it's important to point out that something like 90% of near-death experiencers, and this certainly includes people who have, are agnostic, atheist, what have you, but they have these experiences, and whoa, does it change their view. And more than 90% of NDEers, back to this world knowing that there is a loving God force at the core of the universe. And I came back realizing it doesn't matter if you want to call it God or Allah, Brahman, Vishnu, Jehovah, Yahweh, Great Spirit. You know, you're not owning it. Uh, it is yeah. actually the master of what is going on. And it, and in many ways, this lesson from NDEs is, is, instructs the, the religions of the world to unite around the common fundamentals from the NDE world of love kindness compassion mercy acceptance but necessary forgiveness and, and never forget gratitude but uh they teach us of you know that we're really spiritual beings in a spiritual universe and once people realize this is not a battle between science and spirituality but then in fact science and spirituality greatly strengthen each other that's when all this starts to make far more sense and that's the kind of thing we discuss not in the book proof of heaven And Map of Heaven, Map of Heaven is where I simply talk about all the other experiences related to me from other people at my talks who would hear me talk and say, well, I'll tell you something. I've never told anybody this before, but and then they'll share a story with me that could change the world. And there are millions of those stories out there. And yet our culture tends to say, no, 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 no. Science says that's not possible. Well, that's materialist science that actually has been demoted and rejected by the modern scientific world at large. You know, the the quantum informed science of consciousness completely rejects the bleak and paltry fiction of materialism that tries to pretend that we're material creatures, birth to death, don't have free will, and that our consciousness is an illusion. That's where you know, our modern reductive materialist Newtonian deterministic science would try and lead you. But those involved in the science of consciousness realize that that science is a paltry fiction that's not at all adequate to explain the nature of reality. And the new quantum-informed uh science of consciousness which is something that i promote and am studying and teach and i work with hundreds of scientists around the world studying the science of consciousness and we've left that materialist nonsense behind Uh, go to galileocommission.org or scientificandmedical.net and you'll see two of the scientific groups that i work with uh, on a regular basis who are trying to push our science forward to a point where we can more fully explain, explain the nature of consciousness as opposed to simply rejecting all of this as being <laughs> impossible according to our weak and paltry materialist models that pretend the brain is creating consciousness locally out of uh, you know physical matter. That's just not true. And this is where proof of heaven uh, in many ways has helped contribute to a scientific revolution. Oh, that's no- for sure. And I think that
1: the important thing for everyone to remember is that we're in an exploration. You know, we 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 try to grab a hold of these beliefs that we understand everything, and we understand very little. So when we let out, and that's what science should be—the exploration—and right. and you know, find an answer to the question, and every answer brings us to another question. So that's a lot to take in. <laughs> what you what you're talking about, and a lot of people will struggle with it because it hits their control structures. And their belief systems and then they you know they wobble in the the fear of losing what they think they know but no. if you don't let yourself expand you narrow down and you get stuck on a treadmill which doesn't serve your soul so when you crossed over um, and i'm sure you've been asked this question a hundred times what was it like for you did you what was your experience and what have you come what have you come back here with
0: Well, I think an important thing to point out is that there was one atypical feature of my near-death experience uh, that you usually don't find in near-death experiences. But I came to realize in the months and years after my coma that it was absolutely essential for me to accept the reality of the experience. And that unusual feature was amnesia. I didn't remember any of the events of Eben Alexander's life. So when when everything started for me deep in this coma, it was a, a fresh starting point. I had no knowledge of Earth or humanity or this universe. I really had an empty slate, and that was absolutely critical for some of the deepest and most profound lessons that I was ending up uh, having to accept uh, after going through this whole experience. But it also
1: sorry. So, so what did that feel like? What 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 did you actually feel? Did you just feel? energy? Did you feel like you were in a body? What did it actually feel like? I
0: had no awareness, no body awareness at any point during the journey. Uh, But I was a speck of awareness. So I could witness things going on around me. And those things expanded tremendously over time. It started in what I call the earthworm's eye view, a very primitive course, kind of unresponsive realm. And I seemed to be there for ages. I'm certain I didn't have any kind of memory moment to moment. So it seemed to just be going on and on and on of kind of a monotonous pounding. It was like being in dirty jello. I had a feeling of kind of tactile sensation of roots or blood vessels around me. So I was aware of things, but it was kind of murky and and dark and kind of foreboding sounding. But because of my amnesia, I couldn't remember anything different. And so to me, it was simply, this is the way it is. And uh, I accepted it. The good news is that didn't last forever. They came a slowly spinning white light that had kind of a ground glass appearance and had fine silvery and golden tendrils around it and it was slowly spinning as it came to me out of this murky darkness and it came packaged with a musical melody that was very important music vibration frequency becomes a an extremely important theme for my entire journey uh i mean for example, note that I was working as a neurosurgeon coordinating research for the focused ultrasound neurosurgery Found- or Surgery foundation using ultrasound for therapeutic effect. That's the work I was doing when I went into coma. But then deep in coma, music becomes the way that I could traverse these spiritual realms. And it was the musical notes that came packaged with that perfect musical melody. That allowed me to re-enter that portal many times because I would ascend through these spiritual levels, but then tumble back down to that earthly view. But by remembering the musical notes of the melody, I could always conjure up this light portal that took me up. And the the first time it happened, it took me up into this brilliant, rich, ultra-real gateway valley, Uh, and that was. Can I I just
1: jump in there? So Uh when you when you um uh when you were hearing the music, have you heard that type of music? On earth like or is it completely different
0: yeah this is from the world of ideals i mean this would be the source of creative uh uh, music for musicians i mean that's where i'm convinced that's a very creative space that gateway valley uh kind of a a deep spiritual level but also with great intersection with this world um and in that valley this uh, music was just incredible that led me up into it i mean the music was always associated with these light portals uh, and so in that first passage, I'm in this realm that's far more real than this world. And that's an important thing for people to get. Mm-hmm. Many people think that a near-death experience is kind of murky and dreamlike. They don't realize this world, the material world, is murky and dreamlike. That world is sharp and clear and just filled with meaning and, and, and power and detail. Uh, and that's the realm where, for example, we reunite with higher souls. That's where we go through life reviews. That's where we'd uh, meet up with our soul groups and uh, go through uh, planning for next incarnations and then diving back in. That's kind of the, the level of understanding of that, of that gateway valley. Another important thing to understand, people often say these journeys are ineffable, indescribable. Part of the reason for that is in that spiritual realm of that gateway valley, you're completely outside of space and time to the point where people can have a life review. And when you read the scientific study of life reviews, what you realize is you can have birth, death, everything in between, even points before previous lifetimes, even points ahead, visions of future lifetimes. And it all occurs simultaneously. The important thing to get is this is not just about remembering events of your life. Uh, more than half of near-death experiences who have a life review end up saying it's, it's more real than lived events of living this world. And also, it's more like a reliving of events than it is of a remembering of events. Very important to get that, because you need to understand that that realm is so kind of exotic that you're totally outside of our linear narrative of time flow in the earthly sense, and able to see grand associations of events in your life and even in prior lifetimes that contribute to the events of this lifetime. So it's a far grander theater that's completely outside of our mundane little vision of, of, of life flowing by in this narrative fashion with time flow because it's completely out of that you were going to ask a question yeah
1: i tell you what i'm accused of talking but you're one of the best i've seen (laughs) you're a really good talker um what i was going to say is that my understanding of the life review is that you get to feel you know you relive the experience but you feel it from from your perspective from the perspective of whatever was around you at during that experience that you're reliving and if we broaden out our understanding to think of it as a soul journey and this life is a portion of it. It is a an experience that we're having. Then you you get in your life review, you're actually reviewing your soul journey or what you need for your for your next reincarnation to understand. It actually is
0: even more important than that in terms of the true nature of the life review. Bruce Grayson, who's a skeptical physician who has examined near-death experiences for more than 45 years, uh, wrote a beautiful paper in the Journal of Near-Death Studies. It came out in September or in the fall of 2021. And in that, he he talks a lot about the life review and gives statistics on, but one of the most impressive to me was he said, I think it was 74% of those who had had life reviews in a series of roughly 700 cases at that time uh, described it as reliving the events from the perspective of others around us who were affected by our actions and thoughts. That is the important point. Because it's basically like it's showing us that in this rigorously studied scientific field of, of near-death experiences, what you find is a majority of people relive the events of their life through the emotional truth of people around them who were affected by their actions and thoughts. What it's a, the best way of putting this, it's like the golden rule is written into the very fabric of the universe. Treat others as you would like to be treated. Because in the life of you, you have to be on the receiving end of whatever you've been handing out to others. And in fact, I think that in many cases of a negative or distressing or hellish NDE, uh, which is roughly 5% of all NDEs, uh, that a significant proportion of those are people who have a life review that's so uncomfortable because of all the pain and suffering they handed out to other people, all the greed and selfishness they demonstrated, that when they're on the other side of it, it feels horrible. And that, that, the life review serves as a beautiful course correction. Now, of course, the life reviews happen for those who pass, too. If you read the the, uh, book of Christopher Kerr, K-E-R-R, he wrote a beautiful book, came out about three years ago. It's called Death is But a Dream. He's a hospice doctor in Buffalo, New York. All he does is hospice. He doesn't care about near-death experiences one bit. And yet what happens is in the hospice literature and in his experience, you find the exactly same things are happening people are going into a review of their lives, their loved ones are coming out of the the spiritual realm to welcome them over and in that process, are reminding them of events they lived through in their life that might've been a challenge at the time, but now can serve as kind of a teach point and a a touch point, uh, the help and the learning and teaching of these lessons and it helps them to move on to the next level. So what Christopher Kerr's work shows is that all these things we talked about in the NDE literature, and that people complain, they say, well, wait a minute, the near-death experiencer didn't die. So how do we know that has anything to do with what happens when we die? Well, we know it because Christopher Kerr in his book, uh, you know, Death is But a Dream, has shown us that the very same thing happens in the hospice world. So uh, our loved ones do come to greet us, just as Gregory Shushan has written about extensively in writing about near-death experiences and tribal cultures and, and Aboriginal cultures and ancient cultures going back through history and finding that the most common ingredient is that our loved ones appear to us. Now, of course, the me before coma would have said, oh, that's wishful thinking. You know, you see who you want to see on the way out. That's one of the reasons why my story ended up being structured the way it was. If I had scripted it, My father, my adoptive father, who had passed over four years before my coma, he would have been there front and center, but he was nowhere to be found. And I had this beautiful guardian angel, and those who've read the book Proof of Heaven will realize who she was and how important she was in my journey. And she showed me four months post coma, the reality of the journey. And all that is the story fully told in Proof of Heaven. So I won't go into more detail about that now. But uh, the reality is all of this starts to fit together into a much bigger picture of understanding. And when you realize it doesn't violate any of our notions of science or, uh, uh, you know, especially with quantum physics. And in, in Living in Mind for Universe, we go into great detail about how you have to unify quantum physics, neuroscience and the hard problem of consciousness the binding problem in philosophy of mind, that is the apparent unity of consciousness within the individual, which is very hard to explain from a materialist perspective, if it's all due to different neuronal populations uh and also parapsychology and all of its evidence for non-local consciousness but all of these fields contribute tremendously to the modern science of consciousness which is greatly expanding beyond that uh, simplistic falsehood of materialism that pretends that our brain creates consciousness and when our brain and body die that's the end of our conscious awareness that is simply untrue
1: yeah for sure so so I'm going to ask you the big question that we ask all the guests. What does humanity need to acknowledge and understand for us to evolve? What do you think is the most important thing we need to get our heads around?
0: Well, in many ways, I'd say the lesson that we portray in our book, Living a Mindful Universe, is right there at the heart of the lesson that needs to come out to this world. And that is, we point out how the modern science of consciousness is illuminating how we're really sharing the mind of the universe that we're all in this together just as those life reviews show us when we can experience you know our mental space shared with the mental space of those who've left the physical plane as well as some who are still in the physical plane we start to realize that that mental one mind is truly uh, what we're bound together through. And that binding force of love it was, is what brings us all together in this. So it's really an understanding that if we hurt others, we're hurting ourselves in a very real sense. Yeah. And we need to wake up to that and away from the crazy slumber of that materialist uh, thinking that we're all f- separate. You know, the uh, false sense of separation inherent in materialist thought, you know, in scientific materialism is very deadly. It's what has allowed for all the greed uh, and selfishness, the corporate greed, for example, in the energy industry and how they've uh, basically, we knew in in the early 20th century that burning carbon-based fuels would ultimately make the planet hotter. When I was studying science initially back in the 70s and 80s, we knew climate change was very real and it was going to be a horrible problem for our children and grandchildren. We didn't realize it was going to be a horrible problem for us. And then <laughs> here we go in the last 10 or 20 years, and the whole world is on fire. you yeah. know. And it's because of human caused climate change. There's no scientific debate about that. It's absolutely a fact. And it's that corporate greed because those scientists at those energy companies knew this. They knew they were baking the planet, but they didn't care because the profit modem was so gigantic. You know, why would they care when they were making so much money? But now the world is paying the price. And each year, the UN climate reports are much worse than predicted, you know, a year or two mm. earlier. And yeah. it's because we are, our ignorance is so profound. We have no idea how we've already stumbled over the abyss and are in deep, deep trouble. Even if we stop burning uh, carbon fuels now, the whole system will keep getting worse for about 100 years. That's no reason not to do the right thing. It's Mm. actually even more reason to do the right thing now. But this awakening uh, is about realizing we're all in this together. And when we hurt others, we hurt ourselves. And especially when you realize that a huge part of the science that supports everything I'm talking about is the reincarnation literature, uvadops.org, for example. Uh, Dr. Uh, Jim Tucker, Dr. Ian Stevenson, they've studied more than 2,700 cases of past life memories in children, suggestive of reincarnation over six decades. And 1,700 of those 2,700 cases are what they call solved. That is, they've actually found the person who lived before. So, if even if you're the greediest, most selfish person on earth, when you hear this about reincarnation, that there's scientific basis for it, and you know how deadly this uh, climate change and all of our continued addiction to fossil fuels is, uh, there's some little part of you that's going to experience the the very deep and dark side of climate change. You know, 30, 40, 50 years from now. If you need that as an incentive to get off your tail end and start helping this world to go to sustainable energy and quit ruining our planet with a burning of carbon-based fuels, uh, let's do it. You know, yeah, But sure. to pretend otherwise is insanity. Uh, and uh, There is you know.
1: an insanity. There is an insanity to it. And it's really interesting is that the corporations that are making the huge money are raping the planet that we need to survive... And the people, uh, all their resources and money and all the rest of it, starting to be extracted as well. So it's like this continuous form of indifference, indifference, indifference. And the majority of people are the ones paying the biggest price.
0: Well, that is true. And the the, the only good news in this whole situation is that it's getting so bad and so yeah. obvious with the Canada on fire, the Western U.S. Uh, la- uh, last year on fire. Uh, Australia, of course, has had horrible trouble with, with these fires. Uh, and then, of course, there are floods and, and, and mm-hmm. droughts and every bit of it. I mean, what climate change means is whatever is, you know, the floods, the droughts, et cetera, will all just get worse. Uh, you know, and when you have polar cold over Texas in the U.S., you know, which we had two winters ago, Of You know, something's obviously very off and that's all due to climate change and a weakening of the of the jet stream and the polar vortex and all that kind of thing. It's all tied together. And we're we're in so much ignorance about this. You know, the uh, the Gulf Stream, for example, which carries all that warm water from the Caribbean Sea up up to Ireland and, uh, you know, the northwest coast of of the British Isles. Uh, If that puppy shuts down, we're in very deep trouble. And there are many other things going on with the Thwaites ice shelf in Antarctica. If that collapses, we've got 11 feet of sea level rise just from that event. I mean, all these things are kind of on the edge of disaster. Uh, And it all just gets worse and worse the more we continue of, you know, burning fossil fuels and burning uh, any biomass at all. And uh, it's really time to move as quickly and and as completely as we can to sustainable energy sources like wind uh, and solar, uh, magma power, uh, tidal energy. There are many different ways we can harvest Mm -hmm. uh, uh, these energies and start using them. But uh, this ongoing addiction to burning carbon-based fuels is suicide for the planet. And it is high time we woke up to this connection we have with nature and with the planet, with the universe at large, and quit being so damn greedy and stripping so many resources from this fragile, finite planet and start taking responsibility as much better stewards of the planet.
1: Yeah, and even it's our right to live on a planet that the air is really breathable, the water is drinkable, the food is at its its peak nutrition without being chemically based and you know some of the things that they're doing with the farmers around the world is actually mind-boggling as well. So it's it's yeah, there's this this whole system that we've got is very flawed. And like I said, the people are the ones paying the price. So and right. and it's because we've forgotten who we are. I mean you know I look at humanity as souls within a physical body and they remember that. So when you see us act from kindness, you know, like when we do have the floods, people come out of the woodwork to help other people. You know, we, we become little heroes, but that's because we're working from our soul. We're caring. Right. So, so that's the true essence of who we are. When we go back into our greed and couldn't be bothered and it's not my problem, we're operating from, I refer to it as mankind, which a lot of people don't like that word anymore, but it's just, I just used that 20 years ago, so I'm just sort of going to continue is, is that we forget that we're souls in a physical body, and that's what I mean by mankind. Right. So, And I believe that the, the soul review, we can do that. I class that as spirituality. If you're actually giving yourself permission to be reflective of what you're experiencing and how you have impacted people around you, you're on a sp- spiritual journey. So how you do that is unique to you, and it should be unique to you. And it's about really taking responsibility for your own consciousness and your own evolution, which then would move out into being a contributor to the evolution of the planet as well.
0: Well, absolutely. That's a beautiful way of putting it, Lorraine. And uh, Mm. that's really, I think, the big message now is we need to all wake up to this, wake out of that deep slumber uh, of uh, it's kind of funny how... uh, DeSantis, uh, the politician in the U.S., talks about the woke culture. Well, he's he's really kind of preferring the deeply asleep culture that he represents, which is asleep at the wheel, which is the reason we're in so much trouble. Mm. So we need to wake up, and and uh, that involves a tremendous kind of shift in uh, in humanity, and and certainly in our politics and political leadership. But it's really up to the people of this earth to get rid of all those fossils in government who have been leading us down this horrible pathway. We need a lot of young, bright, uh, intelligent people. In the US, we need term limits. We need to get rid of um, you know this whole host of older politicians, uh, generally white guys, who have taken us down this horrible pathway. Uh, and it is high time to get rid of all of them. And that also includes, of course, uh, when we talk about authoritarians uh, and warmongers. It's up to the people of the world. Now I realize there's propaganda and other problems with information flow, mm-hmm. but it's really up to all of us to get rid of the crazy despots on this world, especially those who would even consider the use of nuclear weapons. It is high time this world got rid of nuclear weapons and we can do it. There have been efforts uh, decades ago to diminish the number of nuclear arms. And uh, you know we got rid of a lot of them, but now it is time to continue that process and really winnow it down to where we have almost no nukes left at all. In fact, I would argue for zero nukes, but uh, certainly the number we have today, which is over 12,000 potential nuclear warheads is way, 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 way too many. And it's up to the United States, Russia, China, uh, you know, the leaders in this field, and also the other countries who have nuclear weapons. It's up to all of us to take responsibility to get rid of them, because I don't think anyone on this planet would think it could ever be a good idea to have mutually assured destruction which is exactly <laughs> what happens with you know anybody firing off a nuke yeah. once it happens you know there's nothing to really stop the response yeah. and the response can be absolutely catastrophic so well, it's and- really up to us as people to make sure we get rid of the authoritarians and the politicians anybody who supports ongoing uh, you know having nuclear weapons around we need to get rid of them in whatever uh, means possible Uh, I tend to prefer democracies uh, rising up to uh, get rid of the despots and autocrats of this world, Uh, but it's really up to all of us to participate in that kind of activity.
1: And and I I think one of the ways we can do that is from grassroots because what I see is that we we as the people should demand honesty from our politicians. You know, if I go back... You know, in my father's day, and it's probably, you know, I don't know if this is real either, but if if someone got caught lying or doing something really, really deceptive, corrupt, you know, there'd be an uproar. So out you go. So the, the, the people were sort of governing the politicians, you know, hang on, there's a line here where I can't find the line anymore. Politicians can lie to us and then they can go, yeah, but that was for your good. You know, and that's it. There's no, there's no uprise. So we've we've right. lost that way, and that that's how you create change is when you demand honesty, integrity, right. transparency, those kind of things. Where all our systems right across the world have become more spin doctoring, concealed. You know, we we have we're having where we're hearing stories about our last prime minister and things like that starting to come out. And we're all like, right, okay. We should have known that. That should have been before. So this lack of care for the people that they're governing, they're working for us. Right. Yeah.
0: Well, absolutely. But uh, I think ultimately, um, you know, the more we can promote democracy, and I know mm -hmm. there are many voices that are kind of countering against that, that opinion now but I I believe it's the safest way to maintain the higher good for the most people involved uh, is uh, forms of democratic government and our ability to get rid of the autocrats. I mean, you can see how bad it is when these autocrats get in power and then declare themselves president for life. And then they, they have this habit of not listening to smarter people around them. Uh, And that's absolutely deadly. When you get leaders who think they're so smart uh, and they're just dumb as a rock, and they keep doing stupid things, and they have too much power for people to to uh, tell them otherwise. And that's just a recipe for absolute disaster. Um, for sure. So the more we can foment, you know, uh, information channels that are reliable, and that's, you know, another problem. I mean, certainly in the U.S., uh, uh, we've had the rise of various... Uh, news organizations that are absolutely just born to lie. That's all they do is make up propaganda. And somehow they've been allowed to flourish. Uh, and then they start pointing the finger and projecting on the, on the other group. But it, it becomes clear that one of them is really misleading and lying through their teeth. And the other group is trying to do a better job of it. And the more we can maintain good news channels, and that involves yeah. You know, good journalistic practices and support of journalism and newspapers and news organizations. Because we, you know, as was noted by the founding fathers of the United States back in the 1700s, you had to have a healthy uh, kind of a news arm that was independent of government. That could report the truth of what was going on so that people in power would not corrupt the news organization and end up like they they have in Russia now where Putin can say anything he wants to and pretend he's fooling his people. And sadly enough, um, you know, he's probably fooling a lot of them. And so that is a a tragic uh, disaster. But we really need to get back to more of a fairness doctrine uh, with news organizations that are really working to bring the truth to people. And especially in this era of the deep fake, you know, deep fake videos and uh, artificial intelligence, we're wandering into some very dangerous mm. territory. If we can't start developing a code of trust with news organizations, um, that we can really know what's true and what's not. And, you know, that we can use those forces to kind of stomp down on these uh, forces of propaganda and forces of political uh, kind of lying. Uh, And sadly, in the United States, the political lying has become so mainstream that it's basically hijacked about a quarter of our country um, into believing that the 2020 election was stolen, which Mm -hmm. is complete nonsense. Uh, And yet uh, there's a significant portion of people who believe that, mainly because of corrupt news organizations that are perfectly willing to lie through their teeth, no matter what, to uh, kind of sell shares. They they basically, as with the trial of Fox News in the U.S. uh, the last few months, um, they basically admitted they were selling their soul to the devil and just lying to their people, Uh, complete lies, just to keep their market share. And, you know, when market share rules the day, we're in deep trouble. We need truth and honesty and, uh, you know, a clear depiction of of real events. That's what we need to honour in our modern world and to absolutely destroy those news organisations that uh, willingly lie through their teeth and uh, just are obviously uh, corrupt.
1: Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting. I I wrote in the, the, the last book I published... When did truth become the enemy? And I was referring more within ourselves, you know, like when we're when we're looking at our own emotional baggage, you know don't don't spin doctor yourself. like if you've done something or you feel something or your your belief system makes you steer away from it, lean into it, and we need to do that collectively as wow. well. You know there's a lot of ugly things in our history and we need to lean into and we need to own them. So right. that everything gets on top of the table.
0: Right. And
1: then and then we can start afresh. Because we were all born into what we're into now. You know, we're all here and it's already happened. So it's like, right, let's the only way we can deal with anything, whether it's personally or collectively, is to value the truth. Which you would have felt on the other side, how much truth Absolutely. is valued. There's no deception there. Right. Yeah.
0: There's no space for deception. Beautiful gifts of that kind of thing, you know. And there's that that old saying that those who uh, fail to study history are doomed to repeat history. And that's a very important statement. And, and, you know, I would have told you that was an important statement, uh, you know, five and ten years ago. But in the last uh, Hmm. uh, six or seven years, I've seen kind of horrible shadows of a return to, uh, say, Nazi Germany of the early 30s right here in the United States. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we don't have any guarantees that democracy will survive. In fact, it's a very fragile uh, thing. And uh, I forgot, I guess it was Washington, George Washington, one of the founders of our country, the first president, who said that democracy is, uh, is a precious gift. Uh, you know, keep it if you can. Yeah. The <laughs> to it would be gigantic. And, they, and boy, have we seen that. Yeah. Uh, With that election of 2020 and all the complete idiocy around that of an actual return to, uh, you know, something that appears a lot to me like Nazi Germany of the early 30s. And that is something to be avoided at all costs. And yet it is a hole we could easily slip back into very easily given this modern era of deep fakes, of irresponsible news and propaganda, uh, it is really high time for us to all fight for democracy and for journalism and, uh, you know, forget, forgetting the truth. And I, I love your point of when did the truth become an enemy? You know, yeah. for us as individuals, for us as kind of soul groups, and for humanity at large, when in the world did the truth, did the facts become an enemy? And yeah. we need to get back to, uh, to a doctrine where, we have a much more ready access to uh, and sharing of, of truth about the facts of a matter.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. So I think it's time to play flip the book. So are you happy to play along?
0: Absolutely. Okay. Give it, so
1: give it a shot. So it's an intuitive game. So And then we don't want you to be sort of reflective on the paragraph that we find. So you can pick between book one, two or three. What would you
0: like? Oh, I think we need book three.
1: Book three. Okay, so that's my latest. That's Spirituality, Evolution, and Awakened Consciousness. So just a few little titles there. So you've got from pages 1 to 188 to pick
0: from. I am thinking page 160 feels about right.
1: Okay. Oh, there you go. <laughs> when did love become the enemy is the heading. Interesting. One, two, mm. three, four, five. You got six six paragraphs. Okay. What would you like? One to six.
0: I think we should take five.
1: Five. Unconditional love stems from the willingness to commit to being of the core essences of your soul. So they're like kindness, care, um, gratitude, all those ones you mentioned before, and the intent to share them with ourselves and others. and just above that dot point, because that's what it was, it is the natural force of our divinity and it is an expression of the purity of our soul's consciousness. That's what core essences are. So unconditional love stems from the willingness to commit to being of the core essences of our souls and the intent to share them with ourselves and others. What's your thoughts on that?
0: I couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) There you go. That's that is so perfect. I'm, I'm always talking in pretty much every interview about kindness, compassion, mercy, acceptance, love, forgiveness uh, when necessary, uh, forgiveness, and of course, uh, gratitude, never forgetting gratitude. And those to me are essential ingredients for all of us to make our lives better and to make the world a far better place. So it's so great to have an affirmation and validation coming from your flip the book. Flip the book. It's interesting nice.
1: because I read soul energy. What people do is they come and have sessions with me and I go through the emotional baggage and I get to the core of their soul. And it's always things like this kindness, unconditional love, clarity. It's all within us. It's just right. we put this big thick blanket of all our emotional beliefs and fears and and misconceptions and shames and all the rest of it. There's a we you know, we're complex in that way. Right. And that stops us from feeling the truth of our soul, which which we struggle to comprehend. And as you would know, is that when you strip away the body and the life, all of a sudden, you're left with the core of who you are.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. Sounds like we've got a friend telling us it's That's time. In
0: from the visiting professors here, <laughs> Zulu and Copper, they agree with you hundred percent. They are <laughs> affirming it. Okay, Copper. That's it. All right. <laughs> so well nice that, to
1: meet you and I enjoyed the conversation
0: Well, very nice to meet you and that was a, a beautiful uh, kind of closing point it really it's uh, something we can all contribute to so uh, I appreciate that and that message of unconditional love at the end of, from flipping the book that was beautiful indeed so thank you Brilliant. so much Brian. great talking with you thanks for doing what you do to get this out there